3: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Happy to have you here with me again. Well, I'm so glad to have as my guest best-selling and award-winning author William Hazelgrove. His books include Right Brothers, Wrong Story, Forging a President, Teddy Roosevelt, and Shots Fired in Terminal 2. Today, he's here to talk about his book, Al Capone and the 1933 World's Fair, the end of the gangster era in Chicago. Thank you for joining me.
2: Oh, thank you for having me.
3: So you're from Chicago, right?
2: Right, exactly. Yes, absolutely.
3: (laughs) Is that part of the reason why you felt compelled to write a book about this? Because you live in the same city that this famous gangster did.
2: Actually, I read uh, Eric Larson's Devil in the White City, the 1893 fair. And so my first thought was, was there a second fair? Was there a second one? So I did some research, and of course I found out there was a 1933 fair, which to me was very interesting because that's the height of the Depression. So, you know, I wasn't going to write a book on Al Capone, believe it or not. I was going to write a book on the 1933 World's Fair. But what I quickly found out was that because of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, They had to get rid of Capone before they would have this fair, or nobody would come. Because after the St. Valentine's Day massacre, they put the gory photos that are in the Chicago History Museum all over the front page of papers nationwide, actually breaking the gentleman's agreement not to do that. And so so what happened was people were like, wow, gangsters are killing people, cops are killing people, because they had two cops there. And so this really, really you know, made the World's Fair Association and the leaders of Chicago realize, what are we doing? There's no way this fair is going to come off unless we address this problem, which is Al Capone. So that's why the book's called Al Capone and the 1933 World's Fair, because the race is on to get rid of him.
3: Yeah, I I wanted to ask you about this, because even though the two events you write about in your book, Capone's Downfall and the 1933 Chicago World's Fair... They don't happen at precisely the same time. You still intertwine the two stories together in a similar fashion as Eric Larson does in Devil in the White City. Did you do that as an homage to his book?
2: Well, you know, actually, my first book, uh, my first narrative nonfiction book, Madam President, The Secret Presidency of Edith Wilson*. Which is really our first one president in nineteen 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 twenty one, I did that with that book, where I split it up, and I felt that going back and forth really keeps the reader glued in. Now obviously, Larson did it with H. H. Holmes, you know, going from the serial killer to the fair. So when I realized that you know I was kind of this sort of two-track narrative where you know, how did they get Capone, and what was that all about, and then how did they build this fair with absolutely no money? I realized that probably the best thing was to do, was to veer back and forth and just move both stories along in parallel, and then at the end have them come together. And, and of course, Eric Larson, you know, famously did it with uh, The Devil in the White City. But I wrote ten novels, and I used that technique a lot in my early novels. Which and it just all you're doing is you're basically sort of amping up the narrative to keep that sort of dramatic tension going so people don't get, you know, a so little complacent with one storyline, then you can immediately go to another.
3: Right, right. So we, we chatted a bit before I started recording this interview, and, and I mentioned to you that once upon a time, in, in one of the early episodes of this podcast, I did an interview with Deirdre Capone. There are a handful of episodes that I've gotten a little pushback from, from listeners. (laughs) And in the case of that one, it was because what she wrote was more of a memoir rather than an actual history book. There is some criticism that she let her granduncle off the hook, made him out to be a much better guy than he really was. What do you think about that? Where do you think Al Capone sits in the annals of American crime history? Was, Was he not as bad of a guy as as most believe
2: well here's the first thing you have to do is you have to realize that in 1931 okay or 1930 people did not view al capone the way we did all right the way people viewed him is the way we view a celebrity or a sports figure he had a fifty thousand dollar ring on his finger he wore a white fedora he had a habit of giving out money this is also the time of the anti-hero manhattan melodrama James Cagney, public enemy number one, Clark Gable, Humphrey Bogart. These were all gangsters, but you weren't sure if they were a bad guy or a good guy. Okay, well, Capone's right in the middle of that, all right? So to people, I can't tell you, I probably have done mm, 50 speeches on my book in various places, and I've probably been in Barnes & Noble 50 times signing uh, copies of Al Capone. And I can't, can't, I've lost count the amount of times people came to me and said, Al Capone, save my family al capone was a good guy al capone gave my dad a job it, it 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 never stops i mean it's everybody has a capone story so he had this folk hero status when he was alive and when he was tooling around in chicago where he was bigger than life this is a time when nobody had any money and he was making a hundred million dollars a year off the sale of beer so he also set up the soup kitchens all over chicago so Chicago was broke. They couldn't do that. So everybody knew who was feeding them. He had a habit of throwing out $100 bills to guys he'd see on the street, down and out guys. Okay. So this sort of built up his status. And, again, when you look at you can go on the Internet right now and pull up a film, a government film of him going to court. The streets are, are literally mobbed. People are mobbing him the way you'd see again today with a major sports figure or a major movie star. I mean, think about this. You can go to a desert island and go up to him and say, Chicago, bang, bang. And you know what they'll say? They'll say, Al Capone. This is before the Internet. So, so you know, to, of course he's a murdering gangster. Absolutely. You have to look back. But you also, in history, you have to see him in the place of the times and how other people saw him. And they did not view him the way we view him.
3: Right. So what year was Capone at the height of his power?
2: 1929. He was at the top of his power. Um, he was, you know, he had. He was making 100 million dollars a year. The Feds were not leaning on him yet. Uh, he pretty much eliminated Bugs Moran with the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So, you know, he, he was living at the top of the Lexington Hotel. He had a steel back chair. Uh, somebody tried to shoot him. He had an armored Cadillac. Uh, he basically moved with a huge entourage. I mean, he ran Chicago. If you weren't on his payroll, you were in the Chicago River or down in Indiana in a trunk. So, I mean, Chicago was more like a third world country at that point. So he did have absolute power over the city. Um, and, you know, and of course his reign was very short. It was five, six years. I mean, this is really, you know, he went to prison in '31. So, so you know, but that was probably you know the point where he was at his zenith.
3: So what's your take on the feud between Capone and Bugs Moran? Do you believe that Capone was involved in the St. Valentine's Day massacre? I I assume.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Machine Gun McGurk and a few others set it up. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I think it got out of hand. I don't think Capone wanted all those guys killed because it created a very, you know, hot environment where the government, you know, Hoover was like, we have to get rid of this guy. You know, Hoover would play medicine ball every morning and with guys in his cabinet, and he'd always say, what's going on with Capone? So he had risen to a level where he was a national problem. And, of course, this brought all the feds down to Chicago, and everybody started working on trying to get rid of him. Now, um, I don't know if you know about the Secret Six or not, but the secret six, I first want to talk about Elliot Ness. Uh, everybody has probably seen The Untouchables and Elliot Ness. Great story. But, unfortunately, it was mostly made up by a guy named Oscar Fraley, who was a sports writer, who met Ness when he was a drunk in the 1950s. And Fraley said to Ness, hey, you got any stories from, you know, Prohibition? And Ness says, well, I've got this 20-page manuscript. Fraley takes it. Ness dies. And Ness has had sort of a hard life since the 20s. And Fraley's like, well, this isn't very good. I'm going to add some things. And what does he add? He adds the whole untouchable story. All right, but it was entirely made up. And you know, of course, it sold 1.5 million copies. It made, you know, it made a star out of Robert Stack in the TV series The Untouchables. And then finally, of course, there was a movie. But the reality was that Chicago had to pretty much act on its own to get rid of Capone. And this is where you go back to the beginning of the World's Fair and that, you know, this guy couldn't stay. So they really created their own police force, and they call them the Secret Six. And they were basically six Chicago millionaires who got together, had this secret police force, and what they did was they had a witness protection program, among other things, where they would send guys down to South America so they could testify later. Then they had their own speakeasy where they could actually sell booze and collect information. Then they had their own gangsters. We called them informants. And then they studied Capone's operation and figured out how much he made per bottle of beer. And they sort of attacked him there. So, you know, really, it was these guys working in tandem with the government who really cornered Capone and which actually resulted in the IRS conviction.
3: Tell us more about the Secret Six. Would there be any names we would recognize?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, Julius Rosenwald, president of Sears, he was part of the Secret Six. Um, We have uh, Robert McCormick. uh, He's the publisher of the Chicago Tribune. He, too, is part of the Secret Six. Um, And McCormick actually got into it in a very strange way in that he was a, uh, you know, he made a lot of money off Capone. Capone was very media savvy. He really understood the power of media, and he always, you know, talked to the newspapers, And so what happened was there was a guy named Jake Lingle. Now, Jake Lingle was a mob reporter. Mob reporters were very popular at the time. Well, Lingle, I don't know if you're familiar with Chicago, but the Chicago Tribune building sits right by what's called the Underground. I've gone down there. There's a famous place down there, and and it's called Billy Goats Tavern, and it's a place made famous on Saturday Night Live. Cheeseburger, cheeseburger, cheeseburger. Okay, so... He goes down to the underground to catch a train out to play the tracks. Guy comes up and shoots him in the head, kills him. McCormick says, That's it. Capone's trying to muzzle the press. And so he joins up with the Secret Six then. Um, So, you know, Robert Isham was also part, Robert Isham Randolph was also part of the Secret Six. He was president of the Chicago Commerce Commission. After that, it gets a little fuzzy as to who the other three guys were. Because all these guys on their deathbed start going, hey, I got one last thing to say, one last thing to say. I was part of the Secret Six. Well, they got to about the Secret 20, and they're like, okay, somebody's lying here. So, you know, it's... But these guys are really the ones who brought Capone down. And Capone even said later, he said, you know, the Secret Six took all the money out of the rackets.
3: So who were the people that made up this secret police force? and, And how were they utilized?
2: They were basically... You know, detectives, probably retired detectives. A lot of guys were uh, cops um, at different times. Um, And a lot of guys were just private investigators. Uh, They were very careful because the Chicago police were corrupt at that time. So, you know, they were very careful not to use police on the force. So really they, they, they were sort of their own force, you know. And they were sort of the untouchables, I mean, if you really want to talk about it. You know, because... They, they were a vigilante force, essentially, operating, you know, under a private charter, uh, illegally, using methods that are illegal, um, but, but desperate times call for desperate measures. And they were desperate to get rid of Capone because they had sunk all this money into this fair. Uh, you know, it, it was going to turn out to be a disaster. They couldn't get rid of Capone. And Capone was just bad for Chicago in general. I mean, just, The reputation of Chicago was horrible at this time. So after the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, it really was enough is enough.
3: Was there any defining moment for the Secret Six as they gathered information and and built their case?
2: Well, you know, there was a probably, if you had to chart it on a graph, there was a moment where McCormick went to see Capone. And Capone said, listen, just... You know, can't you guys lay off me? Um, you know, I'll play ball. And McCormick said, No, Al, you've, you've got to go. And um, so this was, you know, this was sort of one of these moments where uh, Capone was essentially saying, You know, I- I'll be good. And, and he even pointed out that he employs a lot of people in Chicago. But, you know, none of these things really uh, worked for McCormick or the other people. because. You know, things had just gone too far. So, you know, what they did was they worked in tandem with the government to put together this case. See, the the thing that the Secret Six could do is they could do all the the work, the grunt work that traditional police can't do. They could do illegal things. They could get people in and do all these different things. So, you know, if you think of them as sort of a vigilante force that was sort of part of the government at the time, and, and they, you know, worked in tandem. Also, they had money. And, you know, and if you had money, then you could, you, you could do a lot of things. You could hire informants. You could ha- have your own speakeasy. You could, you know, you, you, you could do all the things a government can't do. You could ship guys down to South America so they, they could testify. Um, and, and so this, this gave, just, this empowered the government, gave them that extra push that allowed them to start to box Capone in.
3: What was J. Edgar Hoover's relationship with the Secret Six?
2: That's a great question. He, he didn't work with them directly. Um, He knew of them. Uh, He probably wasn't crazy about them because Hoover saw himself as all powerful. Um, But also he knew Chicago was a big problem, you know, and you know, the FBI didn't have the power that it has today. You know, it just didn't. Um, and so for Hoover, Chicago, he, his, his own view of Chicago was Chicago to take care of its own problems. So, so there really, you know, wasn't a big crossover there. But in fact, um, you know, he, the Secret Six did work with the FBI and, you know, trying to put a case together against Al Capone.
3: Most of us know that the crime that brought Capone down ultimately was tax evasion. What was the actual evidence?
2: Well, you know, let's talk about taxes. In 1931, nobody paid their taxes, really. The IRS was small. I think it hit four or $5,000 of income just to be taxed, and most Americans didn't. Um, so this whole thing of tax evasion was very radical. Uh, actually, Capone was done in by his own lawyers. The, his lawyers were working with the government, and they said, listen, maybe we can work out a deal. Uh, and the government's like, well, what do you think about it? And they're like, well, well, we'll write up something. So his lawyer wrote a letter basically saying that Al Capone had not paid tax on about $100,000, which to you and me doesn't sound like that much, but at that time that was an amazing amount of money. Well, the lawyer thought he was writing this letter to make a deal, but the government used that letter as evidence. So now they've got him in, in a certain way. They're like, you know, we know you, we've got you – so far here for this hundred thousand. So Capone and his lawyers say, All right, tell you what, we'll do a plea bargain. We'll do two years. Two years. Well the government's like, Well, maybe that's the best we can do. So they go, Okay, fine. Capone goes up on the day he's gonna do his plea bargain with his lawyers, he goes up to a guy named Judge Wilkerson, and they say, Well, we're here for our plea bargain and Judge Wilkerson says, No. And they're like, what do you mean, the deal's in? And he says, no, absolutely not. Well, what happened was the president had called Wilkerson and said, you know what, don't take those two years. We've got to get rid of this guy. So now Capone has to go to trial, all right? So Capone does what he always does. He bribes the jury, all right? And so if you saw the movie, you know what happened next. They find out about this. They get a list of all the jurors who have been bribed, and so then they switch the jury, and they end up with all these guys, a reporter said, basically smelled like dirt and cabbage, all these guys from downstate Illinois. And if you're from Chicago, there's Chicago and then there's Illinois. They are not the same. And these guys didn't see Capone as a glamorous gangster. They saw a guy with a $50,000 ring on his finger. They saw the devil. They were God-fearing, church-going men, but so if they saw $5,000 in their lifetime, it would be amazing. So they couldn't be bought off, and they couldn't be dazzled by Capone. They just saw the devil. And so he was convicted for 11 years for tax evasion.
3: One of the scenes that irked me the most in The Untouchables was the scene where Elliot Ness chases Frank Nitti to the rooftop and tosses him him off. off. What about Frank Nitti? Was he able to keep the Capone outfit together after... Al went to jail?
2: You know, he he ran it. Um, you know, he had his own problems. And Niddy was not Al Capone. And, you know, when Capone, as you probably know, was eventually shipped off to Alcatraz. Now, Alcatraz was solitary confinement. Um, it was no talking. Um, Capone was cut off. Also, Capone had syphilis. And syphilis comes back and drives you insane. So Capone was losing his short-term memory, his long-term memory. He couldn't even remember where he hit all his millions before he went to prison. So Nitti is taking over the organization, and he's got his own problems. The feds are closing in on him. And, you know, it just, there was still the gangsters, there's still the outfit, but also prohibition was ending. By the way, the 1933 World's Fair, they sold beer, all right, Prohibition had ended. They had, it had been ratified by all the states, but it had ended. And they said, sure, go to beer." All the bars were open again. So the thing that was fueling Capone's empire, you know, Capone had a great quote. He said, you know, up on the North Shore, they call it hospitality. Down here in the loop, they call it bootlegging. I'm just supplying in need. And indeed he was. Indeed he was, because people still were drinking like crazy. And they, the government was out of business, so he was supplying the booze. But when Prohibition ended, that was pretty much it. You know, gangsters had to turn to other things to make money. You know, obviously, eventually, they turned to drugs and racketeering and everything. But for a while, this really took, you know, a lot of the air out of the balloon. And so, of course, Frank Nitti, as you probably know, ended up committing suicide along some railroad tracks, I think it was. Um, And, you know, and so the outfit was still there, but without Capone at the helm and with Prohibition ending, you know, the the gangster era started to wind down. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realized that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales, every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now,
1: and can you guess the twist? Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood, characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories? Their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast.
3: I'm sure you've seen Boardwalk Empire. Yes. It's, it's a great, great show, of course. Fictionalized, but based loosely on historical events. Their take on Al Capone was that he was psychotic, basically, murdering people early on, right. eventually getting others to do his dirty work, but a brutal, brutal, unhinged guy. What do you think about that portrayal of Al Capone?
2: Yeah, you know, Capone wasn't an indiscriminate killer. You know, he wasn't like the gangs today who kill pretty indiscriminately. He was somebody who it was a method of business. This was the business that was open to him, and Capone was a smart guy. You know, he bottled um, pop as well as booze. He had a huge bottling operation. Uh, His brother, uh, Frank, um, you know, basically invented his own soda pop, Green River, Uh, and he also bottled milk, and he had a spoilage problem, so Capone started to date the bottles of the milk, which spread out became an industry standard so so you know he wasn't a dumb guy and he used violence as a means to coerce people and to get people out of the way who were trying to horn in on his business and at times to settle personal vendetta but it it was mostly infrequent in terms of just he didn't want the heat and it made no sense to him to to do something like that um that really belongs to a later time I mean the gangsters pretty much killed other gangsters and occasionally it would spill over but mostly it stayed you know you you were killing somebody for a reason
3: the murder of of Jake Lingle you mentioned the journalist did did Capone directly order that murder
2: hard to say I mean I I have no evidence to that but when Lingle died they found his bank account was huge (laughs) You know, he's a reporter. He had this monstrous bank account, so he was definitely on a take. You know, he had gotten too far in with the reports. And by the way, several of the people who were killed at the St. Valentine's Day Massacre were not gangsters. They were hanger-oners. One guy was an optometrist. One guy was a mechanic. These are guys who were sort of, you know, the mechanic was actually a guy who tried not to work for the gangsters, but he it's the only work he could find, so he would work on their trucks. So he was at that garage that day, too. The optometrist was just enamored with gangsters. He just he you know sort of like showbiz to him. These are celebrities. And so, you know, he had the bad luck to be with them that day. So, you know, it wasn't always just gangsters.
3: Can you refresh us on the story of the Saint Valentine's Day massacre?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh Moran's men got a message that they were all to meet uh, at the um on Clark Street, in this garage. And the, the, the word was that they were going to intercept uh, one of Capone's shipments. They were going to take this whiskey. And, and Bugs Moran was supposed to be there. Okay? And so the hit was really supposed to be on Bugs Moran, all right, in theory. But all these guys were there. So Moran was on his way there, and he decided to stop off and get a haircut. Now, there was a lookout who was watching the street, and he saw one of the other guys walk in and thought it was Bugs Moran. So then he gave the the word to the, the assassins, okay, they're all there, including Bugs Moran, and they moved in. And again, it was two cops and two guys with long coats, right? And under those coats were two Thompson machine guns. Now, the Thompson machine gun we've all seen in the movies, but actually that came about because there was a guy named General Thompson in World War I who kept... Overrunning trenches of Germans and felt so he couldn't kill them fast enough. So he built his own gun and he called it the Annihilator. Well, the Annihilator really didn't catch on until World War II and the Marines would use it. But the gangsters loved it. And so this, you know, this gun became the gun of choice. And so they walked in and pulled these tiny guns up out of those long coats and then, you know, they just tore these guys to pieces. Then they turned around and walked out with the police leading the two guys out looking like they had just arrested them and disappeared.
3: What had Bugs Moran done?
2: Well, the theory is there had been a lot there's a lot of theories, but the one theory was machine gun Jack McGurn had an assassination attempt and he's really the one who set it up supposedly. And his was, you know, Moran's guys had tried to assassinate him. And so his whole thing was to sort of get revenge. Another theory was that Capone was tired of this sort of back and forth, and he said, enough is enough. You know, let's take out Moran. And, you know, he's bad for my business. So, you know, you're somewhere in the middle of those because they never totally said who was behind it. But you can generally say that it was sort of a, a master blow to try and knock out the competition. Although Moran really was a competition, he was more of a problem, I think.
3: You also write about the mayor of Chicago at, at that time, William Thompson, um, not a person that the Secret Six trusted at all.
2: Right. Now, he was in uh, Capone's payroll. Capone was responsible for getting him elected. Uh, there's the famous pineapple election where they threw bombs at polling places. Um, you know, he was, he was one of Capone's guys and so no he he was he was known to be very, very corrupt, and so you know again, this was the problem that I mean the city leaders actually went to um President Hoover and said, "We need help. our city is out of control you know we we need federal help we we can't control our city and you know Hoover, at this point had no real answer. He had no answer because they'd never had a situation like this before. And again, the FBI wasn't that powerful. It didn't have the power, the federal power it has today. So
3: explain this transition for Chicago to their Second World's Fair. As you've already said, Capone needed to be taken out before the idea of another Chicago World's Fair would become palatable to tourists. When did the idea originally spark? When did the plans for the fair go into effect?
2: Well, really, after the 1929, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, they realized they had a problem because it was such a public relations disaster for Chicago. And the fair, fair, world's fairs are planned for 10 years in advance. So Chicago is busy trying to figure out how we're we going to get the money for this fair, how are people going to have money to spend. But also, we've got this problem. And also, not only the fair... But other economic leaders in Chicago voiced their concern that Chicago is becoming a terrible place to do business, that because of Capone, people were going to have to leave Chicago, that people were afraid to come to Chicago. So, you know, it was just one thing after another. And then, of course, when the St. Valentine's Day massacre occurred, then they realized, wow, the World's Fair is coming, and we've still got this problem. This could be a disaster. Because you invest millions of dollars in this fair, and if you don't get people coming, I mean, people from all over the world, that's why they call it a world Fair, you're going to have this incredible boondoggle on your hands. So getting rid of Capone was just necessary for, this, for them to even push forward with this fair. You know, so, so really, you, know, the, you, you can make a case that it was the fair and it was the fact that Chicago in general had to clean up their reputation, that Chicago's reputation had really become so bad that people thought, you know, gangsters were 24-7 gunning people down. And that's sort of even today that persists. You know, I had a, did a radio interview once with a guy in Canada. He asked me, he goes, how do you live in Chicago? You know, which, which is crazy because Chicago's huge and, you know, and it's fine. And, you know, I mean, there are parts where you don't want to go in, but that's every city. You know.
3: What year was Chicago chosen to host the fair?
2: Well, Chicago pretty much shows itself because Chicago said, Listen, we want to celebrate the incorporation, the hundred year anniversary of Chicago incorporating as a city, which was eighteen thirty three, right? So but then what happened was they were like, you know, I don't think people are gonna come for this history stuff. Let's make it a science fair. Let's call it the Century of Progress. Which, so, you know, they started with the Zephyr, which was a diesel-electric locomotive. They had a microwave popcorn there. They had neon lights. They had television there, if you can believe it.
1: They had,
2: you know, you could make a long-distance call. They had a thing called the Skyride, which was 625 feet up, and you could take a ride along that. Um, you know, they had these incredible lights. Uh, they had houses of the future. They had know, assembly lines where they would put a whole car together in front of people. So, you know, they had preemie babies and incubators. So what they're saying is the future is going to be better. Science and technology are going to solve our problems. Then it morphed again. FDR actually said, can you keep the fair open for another year? Because I think this could get us out of the Great Depression. He was so impressed with all the buying going on. So they turned into a two year fair. So now the fair became a fair of consumerism. A way for people to get out of this was to buy your way out of it. So you kind of blend those together and you have a century of progress.
3: And you write in your book that the two men responsible for getting the fair off the ground were Charles and Rufus Dawes, right?
2: Yes, exactly. Rufus was the president of the Chicago World Fair Association. And Charles Dawes, he's sort of an interesting guy. He was a vice president. All right, and he actually wrote a number one hit called "It's All in the Game," recorded by Tommy Edwards in the 1950s. So he's sort of a Renaissance man. But he's also he, he was the head of the Dawes Reparation Plan for World War One when they were doing the peace. So he's a very smart guy. So basically, Rufus says to Charles, "Where are we going to get the money?" And what Charles Dawes does is he's very smart. He starts. He has a subscription drive, which are basically all these Chicagoans can go up and give five dollars, ten dollars, and special thing for the fair, maybe early entry or something. Then he creates what's called gold notes, and gold notes basically were a bond issue. And so what he did was he sold all these gold notes to people, and they went crazy, and they just bought them, bought them, bought them. And, but it was based on the World's Fair, so if the World's Fair didn't come off, you didn't get paid. Then he used the gold notes as currency to pay the contractors. And they said to the contractors, why in the world would you take this? And they were said, because there's nothing else. Then he said to corporate America, come to Chicago, build your buildings, show us your products, you know, let's get the the country moving again. And so they did. They all came and built buildings, and that's why you had things like General Electric there, General Motors, Chrysler, all these big corporations came showing their wares, showing the future, and getting people to buy again.
3: Remembering back to Eric Larson's book, he he wrote about the 1893 World's Fair as a really important moment in the city's history. It introduced to the world many firsts, including the first Ferris wheel, if my memory is correct. It was a pretty amazing fair for its time. And Chicago managed to repeat itself in 1933. There were some really incredible things that dropped the jaws of visitors.
2: Yeah, well, you know... There's one person who we haven't talked to who is very emblematic of this time, and that's Sally Rand. Sally Rand was a hillbilly from the Ozarks. She runs away with the circus, wants to become famous, bumps into a producer named Cecil B. DeMills out in Hollywood. He puts her in no less than 20 silent movies, changes her name from Harriet Beck to Sally Rand. The talkies come with a jazz singer. She has a lisp and an Ozark accent. She blows out of Hollywood, comes to Chicago. Buy some ostrich feathers at a secondhand store on State Street, Gets it, goes for a tryout at the Paramount Club, goes to the Paramount Club, gets a job. Now she wants to get back to Hollywood. But the biggest show in town is right there in Chicago. So she goes and tries out, and they say, we don't need a feather dancer. So Sally ran hats hatches a plan. She gets a boat. She gets a white horse covers her entire body with this white paint and a white cape. And that's it. Then on the opening night of the fair, all the mucky mucks are there, right, at this one big stage. She takes that boat out. Now, Chicago has what's called Norley Island. This is where the fair is. It's actually not connected to the mainland, all right? It's still there, all right? It's actually all the debris from the Chicago fire. So Sally Rand takes his boat out into the lake, around to the back of Norley Island, gets off at a yacht landing with the horse, gallops through the fair, and the horse gallops right up onto the stage, rears up. People take her picture. They go, oh, my God. It's the Chicago World's Fair, a naked woman on a white horse. They immediately arrest her, then immediately hire her. She becomes the number one financial draw on the Chicago World's Fair for two years. In fact, she takes the Chicago World's Fair from the red to the black. It's incredible.
3: And she's an, an integral part of the sexual revolution, Right.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. She she pushed women's sexuality along, and she was very progressive. She was a businesswoman. She made millions of dollars, just millions and millions of dollars off of this um, over time. She actually danced for the astronauts, the uh, Apollo astronauts, in the inauguration of Mission Control. So these are these are you know amazing things that occurred with her, and and you know only in the Chicago World's Fair could something like this have happened um you know the first of the chicago world fair are are many but the 1933 fair was probably probably the most fascinating thing was the fact that they had no money and everybody thought this fair would fail the first fair was a pr- publicly funded fair the second fair was privately funded and they actually made money at the second fair and did not on the first fair the 1893
3: What were some of the attractions? I know you listed them off uh, earlier in our conversation kind of quickly.
2: Oh, they had – all right. So they had – basically they had premature babies and incubators, if you can believe this. Um, This was incredible to people. They had television. It was called mechanical television. You would sit down and have this amazing experience of seeing yourself on a screen. You could make a long-distance call to anywhere in the country. This was amazing because all the switches were local. Then you could go to another room. They throw popcorn kernels down, and they had a big magnetron where they zapped them in front of you and turned them into popcorn. Well, they they zapped everybody in the room too because they didn't understand microwaves at that time. But you know, <laughs> people people were just fascinated with this and again they had you could take a dirigible ride which was amazing because in 1933 only 10 percent of the people owned a car nobody had flown before and again you had the sky ride 625 feet up it would go across the lagoon to norley island and back this was amazing to people who were born at the turn of the century and by the way that's why you went to a world fair you went to a world fair to be wowed to come out with this and go oh my god i can't believe that and then of course where Sally Rand was dancing, you had, you know, Sally Rand, you had I'm not gonna say prostitution, but you had some very bawdy shows there that if you wanted to, you could find those too.
3: I remember reading a biography of John Dillinger in in 1934, in the midst of this gigantic manhunt for him, I believe up to this point the largest in American history for one for one man. Instead of going off somewhere to hide, Dillinger hid in plain sight and regularly attended the World's Fair in broad daylight multiple times.
2: Right. Well, here's a great story for you. Judy Garland is there at the World's Fair, all right? She has a terrible singing and dancing act. She's there with her mother, all right? They get in a fight. She goes to the Biograph Theater, all right, because why? It's air-conditioned. It's a hot summer night. She sees a man she recognizes in the lobby, thinks he's a movie star, says, hey, mister, can I have your autograph? He says, sure, little lady, gives it to her. Three hours later, he's shot that in the alley, John Dillinger.
3: Ah, good story. So Judy Garland must have been quite young. She's
2: not famous yet because The Wizard of Oz is until 1939.
3: Interesting. So I, I want to go back for a moment to Elliot Ness. As you've already said, his role in bringing Capone down has been greatly embellished. But what role did he play?
2: Okay, great question. Yeah, great question. He he was he was a prohibition agent, and so he did you know he did participate in breaking up the stills and and you know finding booze and all that you know. But he wasn't part of this special force. And that's, that's the difference. He wasn't part of the untouchables. You know, he was a prohibition agent. And then afterward, you know, he ran for mayor of Cincinnati. Um, he worked for Pullman. He got divorced. He, he drank a lot. He was a depressive. So, you know, it wasn't a great stellar life. And, you know, when this book came out, it kind of put him front and center. But the fact is, you know, he was a prohibition agent. He was there. But the untouchables was something that was created by Oscar Fraley.
3: Was there anything in the the Costner movie that was true at all?
2: Probably. I mean, probably the early part um, where the government agents came down and were trying to break up uh, some of the stills and such, and they were, were getting no cooperation. The police were corrupt. Everybody was on the take. So, you know, there's a guy named Frank Wilson who was very instrumental in getting Capone, uh, who worked for the government, and he... He found the, the famous ledger that had all these entries in it from showing for the first time that Capone got some money. Okay, Capone was very smart. He never took income. Never. He never, they could never trace any income to him. But finally, finally, they found this ledger, and then it said Al got X amount of money. So with that in the letter from his lawyer, they could build a case that, you know, we're going to get you on tax evasion. So you might as well cut a deal. And that's really, you know, that's really where all that started but the the untouchable story is just much more glamorous. It's a much better story than getting him on tax evasion, you know, the you know, it's just it's just better. But of course the secret 6 is a great story too, and that's true.
3: So when did the secret 6 not become secret?
2: Uh, you know, they never really knew who they were. I mean, it took, you know, long after they had died. Uh, nobody knew now. The secret 6 hung around after Capone was gone and they did other things and they finally had to break them up because they were getting out of hand as a vigilante force, you know, cause they could do anything they wanted. And, uh, so they, they eventually disbanded them, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, America has a long history of vigilante forces. You know, we just do, um, have you know, at various times of our history. And this was one of them.
3: So you live in Chicago and as you've said, you've spoken many times about this book to groups of, of Chicagoans.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So the people you talk to are mostly sympathetic to Capone?
2: Well, you got to understand, the place I'm talking are where Al Capone lived, like in Cicero. Right, I had one gentleman come up to me and his wife said, he was the dentist for Al Capone. He, he was very old. And, he said, and she said that Capone would come in and everybody in the waiting room would have to move aside and two goons would go in and Capone would sit down in the chair, and the goons would take out their guns. And every time the guy said he was going to hurt Capone, he would he, then Dennis would tell the the guy, the goon, say, "Look, I, this is going to hurt." And then the goon would tell Capone, "This is going to hurt." And then after they were done, they'd give him a big wad of money in an envelope. And there, you know, and I met the woman who actually shoveled his walk as a little girl. Right? She said he was so nice. You know, he gave her candy and, and all these other things. And then there's other guys who. You know, I met one guy came up to me in a Barnes and Noble and said, Oh yeah, my mom was Capone's girlfriend I said, Really? He goes, Yeah, she was a real number And I go, Did you ever meet Capone? He said, Oh yeah, what happened was my mom got in a fight with him and then these two big guys showed up and took me and took me to a bar and I was in front of this big fat Italian guy and he started slapping me around and that was Capone. And I said, What happened? He goes, Oh, he let me go. My mom and him made up. So I mean, I, and I can't tell you the amount of people who made bathtub gin. You know, said, oh yeah, we made bathtub gin, and you know, I mean, again, you know, in Chicago, and I just gave a speech last night in a, a library, and a gentleman stood up and he said, oh yeah, my neighbor, he said, everybody thought Al Capone was great. He helped people out. He helped out my dad. You know, I mean, this was this, and then another woman though stood up and said, that's not my view of him. You know, she was younger. But, you know, again, it's all where you're sitting. There
3: was an attempted assassination on him, wasn't there?
2: I, yeah, I, I think I know what you're talking about. Um, uh, there were several, I think, actually. Um, Capone kept moving around. Capone could never stay his own home very long, you know. And he actually said many times he wanted out of the rackets. But, you know, he said, once you're in, you're in.
3: Who was the, the mayor that replaced Thompson? Thermac. He didn't last very long.
2: No, no. He was assassinated uh, with standing next to FDR, and the lore was that the assassin was trying to shoot Roosevelt. But the fact of the matter is a lot of people say Cermak, because Cermak was trying to clean up Chicago, that Cermak was taken out for you know, trying to lean on the mob at that time. And, uh, you know, to this day, whoever you talk to, they'll say, yeah or no. But no, he didn't he didn't last very long.
3: I'm trying to figure out in my mind the the extent of Capone's popularity at the time of his arrest. Yes, as as you've stated, he was seen as a massive celebrity. A certain segment depended on his soup kitchens, etc. But there was a large reform movement in the city as well. Not everyone was happy with him.
2: No, a lot of people were very unhappy with him. They wanted to get rid of him, you know. But, you know, he held the power at the time. But to the general public, Capone of that time was not viewed as
1: a menace,
2: if you will. Um, He was viewed as somebody who you feared, but he also was viewed, again, as a celebrity. You know, as somebody bigger than life. He would wear flashy ties and these you know three hundred dollar suits and you know he moved around with an entourage and just i again i i can't tell you how many people come and tell me how they saw capone you know say i saw capone you know that and that's just a little bit of starstruck you know like a gentleman came said yeah I, i saw capone i was a kid i remember him walking down the street once you know and just you know one thing after another and uh and this is just, uh, you know, it's, it's a hard thing for us to put our head around that this gangster would be regarded as a celebrity. But, you know, they didn't have television. They, they didn't have all these icons that we have now. And so in Chicago, also people were very provincial. People pretty much operated in their own neighborhoods. In Chicago, people didn't even move out of their neighborhoods a lot of times. They lived and died there. So, you know, Capone was Chicago. And and so it lives on. And I tell you, I mean I've sold a ton of books here in Chicagoland area because Capone is still popular.
3: Absolutely. Uh no, yeah. The question I was trying to get to, there was a reform mayor after Thompson. Yeah. More voters must have wanted Capone gone than wanted him there.
2: Right. Yeah, yeah. people wanted the city cleaned up. There's absolutely no doubt. There was a public outcry against the gangsters and about the violence. And yes, the people wanted the city cleaned up. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, and and that's maybe been a little lost under the, well, he wasn't all bad kind of thing. But no, absolutely. The As a whole, the city wanted to clean its image up. And that's where you had the Secret Six and all these other people come in.
3: So Al Capone is is big business in Chicago still. Now there are a lot of places in the city where people can go and learn about him, revel in his mythology.
2: Oh yeah, there's a gangster tour. You can go. You can go. You know, see his home still there in Cicero. He's buried in Mount Carmel Cemetery. Uh, there's all sorts of things. I mean, there's restaurants and you know, just one thing after another. I've I've been to. Uh, Capone sort of celebrations and things like that, and you know, I mean, it's it—he's become part folklore, part myth, part history, and and just look at the amount of movies made about this guy. You know, people just can't get enough because it's fascinating. Time, you know, it was sort of the Wild West in Chicago, and then there was this guy who uh became bigger than life, and and rightly or wrongly, um, you can't really put your finger on it, but there it is. And so it's come down to history. And again, I never thought I'd write about Capone because I started out writing about the World's Fair. But it just shows that he was so part of everything that you really couldn't avoid him.
3: One of his homes was, was recently up for sale, wasn't it?
2: Yes. Uh, yes, it was. I forgot which one it was, but I saw it in the paper, yeah. It was for sale.
3: Have you thought about buying it?
2: No. <laughs> no, no. No, no I, I've, I've done my part on the Capone saga. So. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, So you're an author that has written many books. Are there any other books you've written with maybe a true crime slant that you feel my listeners might enjoy?
2: Well, in terms of true crime, there's, you know, in hardcore crime, I probably have to veer out of that because a lot of my books um aren't aren't so much in that genre but two books that I have written that they might they might find interesting is I have a upcoming book on Sally Rand, which has you know she she cavorted with a lot of gangsters at the time, but also too, I have a book out on the Wright brothers, and that tells a story that nobody's ever heard of in terms of the right brothers. I wrote a two-page article in the Smithsonian Magazine in December when it came out, where it tells the real story what really happened to the right brothers. It's just the same kind of smoking gun as the secret six. There's a real story there that people have not learned. Now, also I will say that Madam President, the secret president of Edith Wilson, might be fascinating to people because, while it's not crime, edith wilson they hid Woodrow wilson away and she took over and ran the united states for two years from 1919 to 1921
3: so these might be the hmm. So, so you have a website right
2: yes yes it's uh, williamhazelgrove.com
3: your book is available online for people to purchase
2: yeah, it is. It's. Uh, they can get it there. You can get it at Binds and Noble. Um, it's pretty much everywhere. There's an audio version. There's a Kindle version. Um, yeah, it's uh, pretty much widely available.
3: Perfect. And if anyone wants to contact you personally, they can do so through your website, right?
2: Absolutely. Just go to the contact page. And uh, also there, I... I have 50 speeches on there that I'm giving, that I'm booked for, and there's all sorts of interviews, media. Um, you know, I did C-SPAN, uh, American History TV. Um, they're working on a PBS movie on Adam President. that I'm a consultant on So there's all sorts of stuff going on there.
3: Well, super. Thanks so much for your time today.
2: Oh, thanks for having me.
3: Again, my guest has been William Hazelgrove and his book, Al Capone and the 1933 World's Fair, The End of the Gangster Era in Chicago. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.